Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I am Scott Jones. I am Bill Bohr. And Bill, we are continuing from our Reformation-themed episode. We actually had a question. We did, yes. uh, And we do appreciate your suggestions for episodes. Josh, we are going to get to the stewardship one. We are going to get to the stewardship one. Uh, Steve Lipless, we are going to become faithful Christians and Americans someday. (laughs) I mean, it's per your suggestions. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not. Who knows? And uh, Selma Hayek, please quit calling me. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Lindy always says that would be the female me to some high. Uh, see, now that just that just weirds me out a little bit. Yeah, I just figured. Matter of fact, one of the one of the weirdest moments, my son and I were watching something she was on, and uh, this is uh, my well, I have four sons, so this is uh, number three son, and uh, we both look at each other, and, and it's remarkably uncomfortable that we found the same woman attractive, and we changed the channel. There you go. Right, well, <laughs> sometimes you just have to change the channel so, so in, in, many, change, in many, many ways, contexts. in many contexts. So yeah, we do like uh, we do like the yeah. We do like your feedback, and we appreciate because we're yeah we're always thinking uh, you know we're, we're always looking for stuff to talk about. Well, it also helps us to know that you that you appreciate and engage what we're talking about, and uh, we enjoyed the last conversation. And uh, thank you for the feedback that many of you did as well. Yeah, it was very kind. So this is part two of that. And so why don't you read uh, our listeners' response and question? This comes to us from Andrew Stravitz, and Andrew says in response to our recent Reformation episode, "Isn't the rub about whether or not there are genuine antinomians out there a matter?" of our assumptions regarding a third use of the law. Have you guys done an episode on this already? Seems like it'd be fireball. A hot one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Heidelberg disputation versus reformed doctrines of the third use. Penance as mortal sin versus sneaky works of super erogation. That's such a great word. So it we is, can define it, it in a moment. Yeah, yeah we, sh- we will do that. But seriously, would love to hear a convo on this, especially how these Reformation teachings have come to bear on the lives of the laity. Put this in the future podcast request box, please. Love your conversations, to which, Bill, you quickly responded, thank, officially in the queue. So this is now officially out of the queue. Right. Taken at, from the queue, into the queue, out of the queue, into the airwaves. Okay. Well, let me, let's start with the Heidelberg Disputation, which he, references. Um, Do you want to start with super irrigation, by the way? Well, all right, we'll stop with that. I mean, super irrigation is a work that goes above and above. It's meritorious, right? It's it's a, it's a it's like a a, a moral act or, of righteousness that sort of has a degree of merit. Or yeah, and that's kind of in view of the Catholic use of it. It actually is a there's a debate in modern ethics uh, of whether or not there can be something that is super good, if you would. Is there is there a category of good above and beyond the call of duty? Okay, and I, that's a so can you actually um, for instance, I mean, it was an interesting argument. Like going over your in-laws, that's a, that's an obligation. But sort of, you know, complimenting them. Having a good time. Having a good time. <laughs> that's where it's... Although, actually, you know, I actually have a good time with my in-laws. Yeah, I feel I mean, like in, in that we, they, are, uh, they were just here. We actually had them on the podcast. We did. We did. And we might have them as our Michigan call. Invins from Michigan. That's right. We have people all in all the swing states. Who knows? Michigan may determine the election. As Michigan goes. No, no one says that. Yeah. As, Minnesota, <laughs> as John Piper goes, so might... Minneapolis. Oh my gosh, what a... <laughs> 
Sorry, I was. I mean, right, right, I, mean I mean, I mean, I rabbit trail. We, we just, we just, uh, <laughs> I just, we, we just got uh, the, the sensor just knocked us off there. Exactly. Uh, all right. Well, that's so. Uh, and in the context of this discussion, uh, the idea of uh, supererogation was in part the philosophical uh, and ethical justification for the doctrine of um, indulgences. In other words, that the saints went above and beyond the call of duty, and so they more than did their share of good work and that that's in a deposit in heaven and um, though sins are sins are forgiven in heaven so in other words what what is done wrong against God can be forgiven uh, what we do wrong here on earth needs some sort of penance uh, that's the classic Catholic understanding of it and without getting how, how do I summarize this in two sentences by the late medieval period it had become a corrupt money-making device to say Bill least. I'm thinking of a video game medieval call of duty where you have all these saints running around and you and, and, yeah, they're, they're helping people or maybe fighting demons and then merits go up into the treasury of merit. And, and you have Luther with a big hammer just smashing exactly, them on the head. Just yeah. Exactly. Medieval call of duty. <laughs> this is sad. Uh, and so and, and uh, it was this idea that I could, um, by making a donation, it started out, uh, if you did a super act of merit, uh, for instance, go fight at a crusade, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you could you could have uh, those uh, which, sin- may, which may very well pop killing other Christians. Yeah, which well, did involve yeah. killing other Christians. But the idea that if you did a super act like that of kind of a living martyrdom, and many of them, most of them died doing it, uh, that you could have all of all that your debt that was owed for your sins here on earth could be taken care of. Uh, it's tied to the doctrine of purgatory. If things that were not, if you didn't do your penance in this life for the sins that you committed, then you were in purgatory. It's kind of purgatory is often misunderstood. It's more like the suburbs of heaven. It's not, it's not an in-between place between heaven and hell. It's actually the place you have to go until you work out uh, what you didn't quite get done in this world. You're still, you know, you're still in the neighborhood, but you're not quite in the holy city yet. Yeah, this is, and this is where I think, we might have talked about this before, but I think this is, whether or not purgatory has any biblical justification, it is one of the most pastoral, was one of the most pastoral doctrines yeah. in that you had to be a real SOB to get to hell in medieval Europe. So, so, so you're, you know, you're, you're jackass uncle or this, you know, like they, they probably might spend like a really, really, really long time in purgatory but they're probably not on the other side of the divide I mean you really <laughs> had to you know but so then when you get rid of that there be, be, because most people are fairly ambiguous <laughs> you, know, you, you really I think create you increase anxiety it does I, I think that's I think I grew up in a revivalist tradition where you could lose your salvation and so we'd have revivals twice a year to get it back now is that like um, like is it a five second rule like how long how long <laughs> how much doubt or how much and the lie you know how long before you like if you have a, if you have if you kind of mess up or if you if you stop believing and are hit by a bus the same day is it a week period is it five? well you know that was the thing you know growing up as a kid you know you'd always hear these sermons that you know you may be killed going home from church tonight and as a kid I, I got this idea that gosh the drive home from church must be the most dangerous thing <laughs> in the world because all these preachers are like you could be killed tonight I'll take the train thanks uh, but I think that's I think that is a I think that is a revivalist or evangelical version of, of what you just said because there are a lot of people who got born again who didn't 
it either didn't stick or it uh, it didn't quite make the change that they were hoping it would make. I think a lot of American evangelical Protestants have much more spiritual sensibility that's in tune with the medieval church before the Reformation in its excesses and, and superstitions than they do with the legacy of the Reformation. You have a kind of synergist system where where you can really lose your salvation. And get by. They, they, they replaced the sacraments, though, with baptism and Eucharist are generally replaced, at least in significance, by dedicating, giving your life to Christ and then rededication. That's the right, Eucharist. Right. And there's, you know, you have like, there's a sense in which you have like like little ritual, like uh, not rituals, you have like uh, things like the prayer of Jabez, you've got these superstitious practices. I mean, you've got all this kind kind of, I think in any season, right, anything can degenerate into folk religion. Yeah, I, I think, for instance, what happens in a lot of uh, opening worship music is not that different than getting people fired up to hear the indulgence sermon. I mean, I think it's it's merely, it's it's equating the Holy Spirit with experience. Who was the guy who Which said... Which I think is problematic. The, the, the guy who, the German, who said, yeah, every time the bell rings, a oh, soul from Persia Yeah, that, that's the guy, I just lost the name, but that's, that's the person that was, he was actually selling indulgences in Germany, in a region near Luther, because uh, Frederick uh, the Wise would let him come into his particular... I always wondered what that was in German, because I'm like, wait, did it rhyme in German? I don't know if it rhymed in German. Uh, but, so, this is part of the backdrop in which um, eventually Luther will, you know, have in at least in his rhetoric, no room for works at all when you talk about justification of faith. Now, the Heidelberg Disp- Disputation happens uh, less than a year. It happens in uh, 1518. Again, uh, Martin Luther uh, puts up his 95 thesis in, uh, you know, October 31st, 1517. And there really is a series. You can, you can, you can. What's interesting about Luther? You can see his thought solidify and develop in, of course, really a three or four years during the increasing heat that was put upon him uh, by by the church. And in 1518, it's just a little warm. You know, the heat hasn't been turned up. Matter of fact, there's a couple apocryphal sayings that you know when Pope Leo heard about uh, the 95 Theses, and probably neither of these things are true. But one one apocryphal saying is that he heard it goes, oh, that Luther, he's a clever guy. And the other one is, he's just a drunk German. It'll be okay when he sobers up. <laughs> probably, probably both of those, those are true. Or true. <laughs> <laughs> if they were true, if they were true about that point, they were true at other times in his life. So. The, the following year, there is uh, the annual uh, convention of the Augustinian order in which uh, Luther was a member, a part of, and the Pope had a, uh, had appointed a new uh, vicar general of the order. And so there was a sense that this was kind of like, all right, this is our, we'll put, you know, this is an in-house thing. And so it'll get straightened out uh, at, uh, at the uh, convocation in, in Heidelberg. The, the, uh, the annual meeting was held in Heidelberg. Day. And so the Heidelberg disputations really uh come from Luther defending his idea. Now, probably the most famous thing that comes out of that disputation, something that you talk about frequently, Scott, and uh, I will quote from the Heidelberg disputation. Luther says this, This is clear. He who does not know Christ does not know God, hidden in suffering. Therefore, he prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly, and in general, good to evil. God can be found only in suffering and in the cross, as has already been said. 
that. Therefore, the friends of the cross say that the cross is good and works are evil. For through the cross, works are destroyed. And the old Adam, which is especially edified by works, is crucified. It is impossible for a person not to be puffed up by good works unless he has first been deflated and destroyed by suffering and evil until he knows that he is worthless and that his works are not his but God. Now, what's nuanced here? And again, this is his one of the many places he contrasts, maybe the first place, he contrasts uh, a theology of uh, glory versus theology of cross. But at this point in Luther's thinking, he is open to the idea that works are, uh, good works can happen and can be part of the Christian life if and only if they are followed or preceded by a fear, a, you know, the fear of God, uh, a sense of one's total worthless for God. And what I think, and again, I'm not, I'm not a Luther scholar, but... That never stops us. No, it does stop. But I have studied Luther a good bit. And I did, I did. I have taught Reformed theology. At and I did just take a picture level. of you that you used my Pope Francis bobblehead as a page marker in the in Luther's work. So right. sorry. So you can see, you could see kind of like, like Kilroy was here, those old signs. You can see, you can see Francis' head kind of popping, like popping over the page. You know, this, this, this may be prophetic of the coming unity of the church. Exactly. Uh, uh, Francis holding up uh, Luther. Uh, but at this stage in the in Luther's development, uh, I would say that you could almost almost see a kind of third use of the law. Of it. But but he's but but there's so many qualifications, and you can already see that down the road he's going to not even use that nuanced. Um, but but he does strongly say, and in some levels he he has to totally destroy any sense of work because for him um, he even says earlier in his disputation that any good work is a mortal sin if it's not um, if it's not seen apart from fear and trembling, uh, not necessarily fear and trembling, a sense of utter humility and and fear. Of yeah, and he says basically that the theologian of glory sees through the evil. So even we all know that our 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 works. I mean, my Calvin teacher Charles Partee, who often came to class in a red tracksuit, and Partee was he was um, he was interesting dude, but but smart guy, very smart guy, one of the great Calvin scholars probably of the past decades. But he he was explaining total depravity, what what that meant. He said, "Let me give you an example. I was uh, my I was holding the ladder for my wife, and you know, she, I, I you know I love this woman. She's very dear. I mean, they had a very close marriage, and lovely people. And you know, there was it, she was cleaning out the gutters and leaves." And for a second, and, and he said one of the things like before they got married, he had to give up the habit of smoking scars. She couldn't stand the smell. And as he's holding the ladder for a second, it got a little shaky, just a second. And she could have slipped. And he said, I actually remember thinking, well, even if she falls, at least I'll have my cigars comfort. <laughs> Total depravity. <laughs> Maybe maybe the total depravity is the fact that he was he was the one holding the ladder, well, making well, her clean out the maybe, gutter. Yeah, maybe that's not where the depravity starts. <laughs> in the first, maybe there's several. But I think that you know. So we all know that we repent of our virtues, those our vices. That often we have mixed motives, and ambiguous you know motives when we do even good things. And so Luther basically is thinking here that what the theologian of glory says. Well, yeah, sure, but really our good works participate in something like the eternal form of the good, which is God. So they. Kind Kind of downplay the human part and sort of play up the, the, the participation in the ultimate good, and thereby kind of well, see, this is it kind of uh, you know put um, whipped cream on a turd, so to speak. <laughs> you know, I, but what strikes me, um, and you know, Luther was brilliant in so many ways, but uh, he he criticized Thomas Aquinas, and there's no evidence he ever read Thomas Aquinas. That doesn't stop lots of people. Yeah, I know, but 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 the thing about it, when Thomas Aquinas says that when God rewards our merits. 
because he crowns his own work. I mean, within the life and thought of Thomas Aquinas, that to me totally fits into a kind of, the kind of humility that his piety had. In other words, I can understand, I, I still, you know, as much as I hate to think about this, and this may be, you know, this I may be saying the obvious, it still strikes me how much our temperaments affect our theology. Oh, of course. I mean, and, it's, and, yeah. And, and, then, and then we theologi- you know, we make theological movements based on almost time personality types because I actually think that um, uh, we move to Calvin, but I mean, Calvin in some levels moves, I think, a, takes a step back from the ledge that Luther moves us to and is closer to, I mean, in the, the idea of the third use of law to me is in the, is, is in the, at least it's in the room of, with Thomas Aquinas in terms of understanding the place of good works in the Christian life. So maybe we should define the third use of the law from a Calvinist so standpoint. My, so the first use of the law, of course, is just to restrain evil, right? So it's, and yeah. it's also, well, I think technically it says it is the, uh, the restraining the flesh. Well, or but you know, it, it isn't it? I think in the institutes it says it is the uh, order that was given to the people of Israel by which they should live. Yeah, and so it's yeah, and I'm thinking more generally outside of the country. It's you know, it, it laws you know the law of God or even human laws. You know, it, it can you you can't pass a law that against avarice or entitlement that would cause people to embezzle, right? But you can set up a restraint system that right. might scare someone because of the consequences or something like that. Uh, the second use is to drive you to the gospel because you to, to mercy that you realize that convict yeah to convict. Now, Mike Hollenbach, our friend who's reform says that for him the third use of the law is to knock you on your ass again if the second one didn't do it but the <laughs> so that sounds so that sounds so sounds so cow you i mean i could i could hear uh i mean uh couldn't hear cotton mather saying yeah that. yeah yeah, yeah. It's, but you know so i now the third use of the law for reform for some reform types and again this is one of those traditions where some of the reform people it, kind of wind up closer to the Lutherans and some don't. You know, right. But for the f- ones that are a little further from at least the stereotypical understanding of the Lutheran position, the law also has a role in spiritual formation. It actually can participate in the sanctification, the making holy, the improving on the character of the Christian. Yeah, and I think this is just something that needs to be said because I spend a lot of time, uh, have spent a lot of time with um, uh, our Jewish brothers and colleagues, sisters, that when we are having this discussion about the law, in, in many ways, it is a Christian reading of the Old Testament. Because, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because, yeah. You, you know, and sometimes these conversations get messed up. And frankly, it's sometimes a problem that Reformed people bring to the table when they're doing interfaith dialogue with Jews, because we have this long history and tradition of reading the Hebrew scriptures uh, through coven- through a different kind of covenantal eyes. Um, but I would say this, I mean, there, it's not actually accidental. Although, although actually, I think the Reformed folks are probably folks who, at least with Calvin's Third Use of the Law, probably have an easier time making bridges to a certain sort of piety that you'd find. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think uh, now, uh, Pete Pettit, you know, one of the probably one of the best ecumenical Jewish Christian theologians right now in the country is is a is a, uh, is a Lutheran. But um, I think you're right. I think there's a sense where Calvin, and this is a totally different issue, but Calvin's relationship to the Old Testament uh, is a significant shift from, you know, a thousand years of, of the way people approached it. Uh, I mean, Luther is still in many ways approaching the Old Testament a little bit as, well, he, he, he in some levels, he kind of throws it to the side in some levels. Uh, yeah, I actually think Calvin, like, I mean, as great as treatises like Athanasius on the Incarnation and Anselm's, you know, written, whatever, seven millennia, seven centuries later, um, 
uh, cur deus homo, why did God become a man? For either of those to work, the arguments, Jesus doesn't need to be a Jew. Like there, there, There's right. no way. Like, right. whereas for, he just needs to be a human. For Calvin, the kind of reassertion of the centrality of prophet, priest, and king really locates his own understanding of the personal work of Christ more solidly in the grounds on the ground of the first testament. Well, and and because well, because there's only one testament. There's yeah. only one covenant yeah. for Calvin. So I mean, I mean, I think his idea that there's only one covenant and that's he reappropriates us or he reimagines if you would, uh, you know, prophet king and and, and such in So a, if you're Presbyterian listeners out here you follow three JCs, Jesus Christ, John Calvin and Johnny Cash. Not necessarily in that order. You know, I think if more Presbyterians follow Johnny Cash, it might be a better move. Yeah, but they'd be more fun people. So, so let, let me throw this out. So, that, so various. Usually, when you hear the third use of the law, it's this idea that one can and you and you actually. I mean, probably one of the best examples of this is to look at, for instance, the Puritan movement. I mean, the very nature of the founding uh, of New England is really under. Uh, under the the whole uh, image of this kind of the new you know that we're co- uh, the covenantal people. As a matter of fact, all of us are going to uh, go to uh, vote in an election this Tuesday, and that even the language of being an elector comes from the fact in in New England initially only the members of the church could vote; only the elect were allowed to to vote. And so even I'm doing very well with the elect. <laughs> I'm a Presbyterian. Do very well with the elect. The poorly educated elect, the well-educated elect. <laughs> so now let me ask this question. So you spend a lot of time with Episcopalian or Lutherans in Episcopalian clothing. Right, right? exactly, exactly. And so, uh, so, but you're also a Reformed theologian. Uh, so what's your take on the third use of the law? I, I think it doesn't functionally work. I, I agree. I think that like, I think psych, I, it, exegetically, I think you could defend the, the kind of Lutheran side of the argument. Although you could defend the Reformed. I mean, Pauline scholars... Uh, will continue to you know debate all over the map. I mean, there's this new what book that came out called The Gift, which even people like Scott McKnight think a lot of. And then somebody will say, "Well, no, that's wrong." And they, I mean, this is what. But I would say, on the grounds of human psychology, uh, David, we just actually spoke with David Zoll. Returned my call because I was asking him uh, about these studies we studied. Because like, you, you look at like they did this study with people that wear Fitbits, right? Which I actually thought of getting a Fitbit, but because I like heart rate monitors. You know, I had one. I got. I was given one for Christmas. And I wore it until the battery went dead, and I never tried. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I used to love to work out with heart rate monitors, uh, but like so, basically, you they did a study on people losing weight, right? And mm. the people that didn't wear a Fitbit and did the same like said the same lifestyle lost twice as much weight as the people who did. <laughs> and so it's like the law increases the trespass. Or you know, there's all these you know. David just tells about the study where if you want kids to eat healthy, you have to teach them it's rebellion because it's just one of those things where if you say don't walk on the grass. People want to walk on the grass. It's what it's it's you actually where where we feel most free is when the, the, our will and the good line up. And so I think when when that doesn't happen, and how law generally functions is that it, it, it's there's a prohibition that comes up against our inclinations. And so I just think now again I don't that doesn't mean the law is bad. It reveals our sin. It reveals how much we need redemption. It also provides stop signs and like. Like, you know, in when you're bowling with the 
the gutter, the 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 bumpers they put up to keep the ball from going out of the gutter when you're a kid. I still need those, but you know that I think it functions that way in human life. Like you you can't live without stop signs, you can't live without restraints, you can't. But ultimately, I think what shapes human virtue is love, which is generally experienced uh, free of condition. The more conditional it is, the less it feels like love and more it feels like an exchange. And so I think the things that really form us are love. And so this is the phrase like that a lot of Lutheran types are fond of saying, that the law is powerless to provide what it demands in the sense of it, if it demands us to love God and one another, it, it, it can show us where we don't, but it can't motivate us. It can't change the interiority of our will, character, hearts, affection. So that's where I think it's, it's, it, that is where its powers cease. Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, a renewed vision of, of the Lutheran insight is both really helpful and really problematic. I think it's really helpful in part to the audience you all are trying to reach because it's, it's a great, it's, 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 it's rhetorically the best way to proclaim the gospel. Okay. So from, a, from an evangelistic standpoint or from a sense of, 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 you know, the word that this time needs. Okay. I mean, it's, in some levels, I mean, it's, it's kind of like um, this idea that everyone who gets Paul or always, you know, misunderstands them and misunderstands them. And I think Augustine and Luther are two of the great, you know, interpreters of Paul that both get him and don't get him. I think, and that's, we all do that. But, so I think it's it's a powerful message uh, of a call to freedom, a call to unconditional love, particularly in an age where uh, the great fruits of permissiveness and affirmation without any merit is a greater sense of despair in our culture. I think, I think in some level, the secular law, okay, has, uh, has, uh, not delivered for people. Uh, the, my problem with uh, with with that is it doesn't necessarily. It's the same problem I have with Luther. And I think if and, and actually if you read deeper into Luther, there's a, there's wonderful passages about the Christian life. Okay, but I think for me the idea of of the law, the third use of law, if the third use of law is um, embodying the great commandments to love God and love your neighbor, and to say that's how I'm to live under grace. Then I actually think that there's more coherency with the whole biblical narrative. And also, it's it's an opportunity for for me. I, I mean, I don't have a problem with the, the idea of human cooperate, cooperation with great. I, I mean, I think at some levels, if we really believe in the recreation, if we really believe that Christ is making all things new, then again, we can argue, I mean, again, what whatever the mythology behind the original state of humanity was in Genesis 1, uh, there does seem to be this sense of that, you know, there was this kind of living animation with living under grace and living in this communion with God. I mean, I think that is a, I think the myth of Genesis 1 and 2 is to teach us a kind of hopeful anthropology that can be regained, you know, uh, in Christ, at least from a Christian reading of Genesis 1 and 2 through the new Adam uh, that we have in Christ. So my my, my sense is that um, I think, yes, in the entrance into the kingdom of God, I think Luther is is infinitely helpful. I, I think he should be, you know, I think he should be made a doctor of the Catholic Church with a couple asterisks, if you would. <laughs> but I, I think when it comes to the Christian life, I think Calvin uh, is a better theologian than Luther, uh, and I think he's a better, and I think he he's a more consistent, worse religious psychology. But maybe yeah, I know, I, I agree 100. percent And I, and, be, and, I, and I, beyond and the gospel question, I just say like atheists in the Atlantic Monthly, weekly, right?
emulate the Lutheran take on the law. Like every study that comes out is everything in the workplace, that the more regulatory stuff you put up, the more people get despondent, the more like you could you could find study after study after study that the the law increases the trend. Or it can, you can, I'm not saying that external precepts can't motivate behavior. They can pretty well. I mean, you can, you can, you can do it like, look at Joe Osteen. I mean, kind of, if you do the right thing, well, this will work. Like, he's not a bad looking guy. I mean, that guy, I saw a documentary about him. <laughs> I saw a documentary about like a or not a documentary, it was like a 2020 thing, and you know that one of the whoever was doing it years ago was playing basketball, working out with him. Man, he was like working out with like two forty fives on the bench. He said he looks like such a thin guy, but I was like, man, that guy's putting up a lot of weight. They so said that camera, the camera does take off like ten pounds. No, see, he's winning because he's got better faith. The camera for most people, they say it adds ten pounds for Joe. You know, take it slims him down. But I think that that like I, I just think that 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 what happened like again external uh, constraints uh, will always lead to the erosion of the feeling of freedom. But I think the love I, I think that we're called to freedom for a purpose. I don't I don't find the call to love God and love my neighbor as external constraints. But, but I know I'm not saying what well, but it is to the degree like so okay so I read to you a passage okay from from Law and Gospel. Right. This is written by this is written by David Zoll and some others. It's I don't know who wrote this section. Uh, but um, he's, basically, they're talking about antinomianism. People are against the law. Against the law. That that's the, the the charge that would be made against the position I'm advocating is that I am antinomian, literally anti-law. Right. So right, but that's not antinomianism. Kind of conveys the idea that you can do whatever the hell you yeah. want. Yeah. Uh, so this is uh, what they say here. They quote, uh, to the extent that we have died to sin, it's simply impossible to go on living it. Of course, none of us have died to sin entirely, or even mostly, which is why antinomians in the hedonistic sense don't really exist. The specter of a depraved hedonist sustained by a fervent belief in the gospel is just that, a specter. These aren't real people. There aren't real people who live that way. There may be real people who use forgiveness as an excuse to keep on doing bad stuff. But if there are, it's not as though the gospel of behavior modification would have gotten them in the church's door instead. In fact, their self-indulgence itself is a response to the law rather than a fictional disregard of it. Rebellion and conformity being flip sides of the same coin. And then... um he says that the true antinomian is the one who tries to distort the law. The one who reads, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, as do your best, that's all anyone can ask. Or who reads, sell what you own and give the money to the poor as tithe 10% or contribute what you re- contribute what you reasonably can. The very people who accuse others of antinomianism are usually the ones who themselves are denigrating the law. Because if you want measurable spiritual progress or spiritual accomplishment, you're going to have to lower God's standard quite a bit. The antidote to antinomianism, therefore, is not to sell people on linear, measurable sanctification, but to preach the law in all its fullness. The condemning voice of conscience should not be smoothed over by developing good habits, but should be echoed in the pulpit and taken to its extreme, as Christ does in Matthew 5. The only genuine way to relate to the law is to be utterly condemned by it. Anything less, including using it for exhortation, risks real antinomianism. But see, I I still think there's the danger of the the kind of the neo-reading of Luther is this merging of the psychological with the spiritual, which in some I want. I, I don't want to merge them. I want to equate them. <laughs> <laughs> I resemble that. Remark. <laughs> oh, all I'm, all I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is give peace a chance now? Uh, oh my goodness! What? 
what I would just like to say is that uh, Lutherans tend to, to uh, and people who read the Paul merely through that lens, tend to leave out the phrase, the law of faith in Romans and the law of Christ in Galatians. And I think, in essence, all, I mean, I think they say he's, he's using rhetoric there for two different purposes. I think the law of faith is that there's that the new way by which we are, you know, well, he doesn't say it's a new way. So Paul believes it's always been the way. We've always been part of the family of God through faith. It was either faith that the law is what God gave us to be part of the family or law, family of God, or now it's faith in Messiah Jesus is how we are part of the family of God. We are I have a portion of life to come. We have eternal life. In Galatians, this idea of the law of Christ, I really think what he, you know, his concrete illustrations are a re, uh, you know, in essence saying what Jesus said, you know, to love your neighbor. I mean, that's the oh, law. Absolutely. I don't deny that, that that is the end of the law, the telos of the law. Like, it, like that, 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 that the law, if everybody loved God and loved their neighbor, then there would be no use or need for the law. No, but when I, I think what I'm saying, third use of law is an idea that, all right, as Christians, how do we go back and look at over half our scripture? And in part, what I'm saying is the idea of loving God and loving your neighbor are the marks of the Christian life. But I think what the point the pastor just read was this. I mean, this is, I think, how they, the authors would argue it, is that, okay, so somebody goes out and they hear a sermon on the importance of loving your neighbor, right? Right. And they don't love their neighbor perfectly. And even the one nice thing they did, they're sitting there saying, this SOB, never va- sh- uh, he, 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 he sh- uses his leaf blower that, you know, and shoots it over in my thing. And I don't, why am I even doing this? And then you go to church. Well, I, I, lo- I did the thing the pastor told me to that week. I helped my neighbor. And so, like, at some point, you, you, you the, the law, if if we take Jesus seriously, that at the level the commands are fulfilled with imperfect motivation, or or what something is rest, is abstained from and yet desire to do, that you're as guilty as if you did it or didn't. So I think that that that's what I'm saying. At some point, to use the law as any kind of bar- benchmark for spiritual progress re- requires no, such it, a watering it down no, of it. I'm not saying to use it as a benchmark for progress. I'm using. I'm saying to use it as how shall we live? I mean. I Oh, absolutely. I mean, it does yeah, tell us. It does good, tell yeah, us the what the... Sam- yeah, the good Samaritan is the living example of loving your neighbor, and he is not He is not following all the laws of Moses in the parable. So all I'm... I'm but I think what's great about the, the... What's the point of the good Samaritan, though? Why did the... Who is my neighbor asking to justify himself? And right, I think what right. Jesus is saying is, I'm the Samaritan. And that guy, the, the guy who asked the question, probably, if you look at the discipleship program in the first century, you know, it, it, for, in the context of Second Temple Judaism, the guy who asked to justify himself is probably the most observant one. Probably is the most, you know, much more so than the rabble that gather sure, around and want to turn with Jesus. So on some level, I think the point of that thing is saying that unless you let me, the Samaritan, who looks, I look as offensive to you as a Samaritan, but all the things that the Samaritan does are stuff that the Lord does for Israel. I think it's in some of the, several of the things from Hosea, I forget what, it binds up, does this. So they're prof- so it's the Samaritan is acting there in verb tense wise as the Lord acts. So he's like, look, you can't, you can't because right. you're caught in the sort of self-justification of, of a watered-down Torah observance. Because what Jesus is saying is you can tick the boxes off, but we're all ambiguous, then you need to be neighbored by the real Samaritan. I, but I want to say that that it's that's still an in, I mean part of Jesus is reflecting there I think which was very much an in-house Jewish debate about the nature of the law you know it's interesting the rabbis had a saying that the first temple was destroyed because they didn't follow the law the second temple was destroyed because they followed it close and the whole the whole you know, the, that what they mean
mean by that is exactly what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, that the letter became important, but the spirit was lost. My personal understanding, when I read the idea of a third use of the law, and maybe I go beyond Calvin here, but the spirit, the spirit of what Jesus is getting at, the spirit of what the two table, the two tables of the law, uh, the spirit of what Paul is getting at when he talks about the law of Christ after kind of dismantling the idea of the works of the law in Galatians is for me not as a not as a way of measuring, but the sense of answering. You know, I I think that um, Abel's cry echoes out in a demonic way across the history of humanity. Am I my brother's keeper? And part of what the cross and part of what the Jesus movement says is, yes, you are. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, the blood of Jesus Christ had a better word than the blood of Abel, saith the Christ. Right, but I think they're still answering. I think he's. Yeah, but, and then then it takes you further to cross because none of us on our good days act like. I mean, none of us are our brother's keeper. No, but all of us, all of us have to try to be. I mean, to me, that's, well, see, sure. that's not excuse. But to say that we aren't absolutely it, I don't. I, I think you know. I mean, most of the verses about confession of sin in the New Testament are written for Christians. Okay, you know, it's like first one. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not against preaching the law. No, I'm not. Pre- I, 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 I'm, against, I'm against preaching it in a non-categorically absolute, unadulterated, 120 percent thermonuclear, thousand-proof way that it's preached by Jesus, like in places like the Sermon on the Mount, where it's absolute. And I don't think, uh, I, so I, I think that like, when we're, when, when in our in our moments where we're most graced, I think, and we actually are free and really loving God and loving other people, we're generally not thinking about like, okay, how am I doing? It's it's in our moments of ambiguous obedience, which are most of them, we're thinking, well, did I keep it? Did I fulfill the thing? I mean, I love the person. I did kind of, and, and we're always in that self-justification process. So I think that when we're really in a graced moment of faithfulness, we we don't need to hear hear the hear the law when we're in most of our ambiguous moments. We need to hear it in its absolute thing that if we if even in our best moments we we are um, our works are as filthy rags still. Uh, well, I, I, it, to me it doesn't matter what it, it works to justify our filthy rags. But I still think that um, it's so it's so easy to to take the free message of grace and to become complacent. And, and I think people who understood the free message, people who understood the mercies of God being new every morning, never took it for granted. But I think that we have to be careful. I think we have to be careful. And I think the third use of law, and I think Calvin's trying to correct what potentially may be a misunderstanding or a, 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 a license that Luther certainly never envisioned, that uh, to be reminded that um, the call to care and love our neighbor is equivalent to saying, Jesus, without you, I have nothing. I mean, I just think, like, practically, how this works out is, I, Tim Calvin, Keller is one of the best preachers. Uh, he, he's the best preacher I've heard week to week. Like as far as consistently, it's just good. And he's a student. Yeah, he, he says part of what has shaped his preaching. He says three things: a sort of approach to biblical theology that sees the testaments as united and sees a kind of redemptive historical thread through the whole thing. And then Luther's law gospel distinction. And the third thing he says is Edwards' religious affections. And Keller is a master at getting like rather than telling people just oh you need to go to church or you should give your money. He's He'll, he'll he'll do these because you know Edward says all sin is a form of unbelief right so like right. so rather than this is where the law though is powerless against unbelief what you have to do
do is is find where the heart is in rebellion because it doesn't understand how the love of God works out in this unbelief and, and, and get under it like Edward says in the religious affections. And so I think that that to me is, you know, we are creatures of the will and until the, the love of God penetrates the fortress of Superman, like sort of ice fortress of solitude around our hearts in any given moment of unbelief, then we then we're powerless. So I think I, I, if we're looking at how to religiously mo- how to motivate people to live more in light of the gospel, I think it's by uh, figuring out the gospel implications behind various parts of belief or, or rebellion, which part part of that involves preaching the law in its categorical effect. See, I, I think that if you love Jesus, then you're going to try to do the things uh, the best that you can understand that Jesus would be. Yes, and then you, and then at the end of that day, you, you realize that try on a good day, maybe, you know, <laughs> try is the, is the operative word. Right. And, and I think the people, that, the people that are the easiest to deal with in life are the people that are the most humble, most aware of their own mistakes. Most, the people that are, are the toughest often are the most self-assured, <laughs> the most sure. the people that... So I think that, that anything that undermines the sense of self-assurance and self-righteousness always will have an ethical payoff because people will just be more likely to give somebody a break, to second-guess themselves in in situations that where there's any ambiguity <laughs> seen. I mean, I say seen because a lot of times we're just blind to it. So I think that anything that props up human self-justification will be toxic to loving God or neighbor. But I think she loved much because she was forgiven. Amen. You just made my point. Amen. Amen. I'm saying there are a lot the, of Christians the, the, the that just sit on their asses and do nothing. And no, no. if you want to get them to do something, that's easy. Preach the law, but don't preach it in full force. Preach, hey, look, Jesus no, will no, like I you more no. and you're more faithful. If you can, no, look, I know you can't be like the rich owner, but if you could give 10%, no, no, then you're, yeah. You let, you let the gospel convict in its own way, but then you give opportunities for people to do Concrete acts. Oh, sure. Of I'm. Kindness. I'm for that. I'm for. I'm not against concrete acts of kindness. I am for concrete acts of kindness. <laughs> okay. Well, this is what you get when you ask us a question. Exactly. Radical. A ra- the radical conclusion. We are for concrete acts of kindness, yeah. and we will see what Lipless has to say about that. Uh, God bless you all.
Bahn gewählt. 